The way to think differently is to act differently and get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals into actionable strategies you can use to think big, start small, and learn fast, and find your edge with excellence. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. Now, in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Snehal Kondarkar. Now, you've probably used some of her code. You see, she's worked for amazing companies like Apple, where she's involved in developing the search and discovery algorithm for lots of the stores. Currently, she's at Reddit, helping them improve the way they build their services. But often for her, engineering wasn't necessarily on the radar or even obvious to her. You see, she had to grow up facing many challenges in the context that she was in. And as a minority and female technical leader in Silicon Valley, she's also had to come up against some absurdities and oddities that need to be challenged. But for her, pushing against these challenges to innovate and create new norms has always been part of her life. My life was dualities. The dualities were such that the upbringing that my parents had and, and, and my dad's mom, my uh, paternal grandmother, was they, they, I felt like they were in a way victims of uh, the society. So they would just teach me what they knew was best. And I remember growing up, my grandmother would call me to come into the kitchen and help out when my brother, who was only two years older than me, could get more time to play outside or watch the television. Um, And I would just resent it. I would be like, why is this happening? What's going on? I didn't know better, so I would just boil inside. And uh, then there were uh, statements which still to date stand out where my grandmother would say, a woman's life is between two Ks, kitchen and the kids. And you can imagine, like, I mean, it drove me nuts. I would be so furious on their limited belief but I didn't know that that was limited belief. Like I couldn't, now I can label it looking back. So there was a lot of pent up frustration, anger, resentment at that point. Yeah, while Snehal was surrounded by these circumstances and social norms, there was an other side of her world. One where she was encouraged to embrace uncertainty, engineering and exploratory techniques to solve complex problems in a difficult world. We had a scooter in the beginning and then we were able to afford a car, but all the servicing, we would do it on our own. And I would watch my dad, this is me, what like nine years old, 10 years old, I would watch him clean the carburetors, uh, clean the spark plugs, do the brake change, um, tune the primers. So all of this was just standard for me. That became part of part of who I was and how my brain started to shape up. So engineering came very naturally to me. 
And I would think the mechanics of taking something apart and then putting it back again. So you have to remember how you took things apart. You don't want to end up with an extra screw at the end thinking, oh my God, this is my scooter and now I don't know when it would break up, break, uh, break down. So all of those things were, were super challenging. On one side, I'm developing my engineering brain. On the other one, I'm being told, not forced, but just told that uh, you have to be a home provider. And I saw my mom doing it, right? So it was, it, it was a, a battle that I had to fight initially. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting because both of these are sort of like conditionings in some respect. Like you're being conditioned to try new things and build right. things in your engineering world. Right. But, it, but also in your home life, you're being conditioned to these are the expectations we have of someone uh, in your role in this country, in this work, culture, whatever it might be. Yeah, pretty much setting guardrails for me. Like girls only behave a certain way and guys only behave a certain way. But then with engineering, it was fine until the point that I would take their jobs away. Like if, if it ended up such that you know, I'm making more money than the, the boy or something like that, then it became a problem. Until then, it was fine. So even with education, it was, it was good. So I benefited. I looked at it from a perspective of uh, opportunities and uh, turning, turning that anger and, and uh, turning the, the fears into creativity in, in some form or the other. So, so what helped you recognize that pattern and then start to flip it in a way that I guess is contrary to what you're being conditioned to, right? I don't know how it happens, but there was a natural, like a physical reaction to things when they would happen that I would react differently because there was some kind of neurological thing where I think I understood this is not fair. And perhaps it could be that I was comparing myself with my brother or the other folks. I don't know how that would happen in, in the community, but, um, but there, was a, there definitely was a sense of, this just doesn't seem fair. And I don't think that the world, rest of the world behaves like this or functions like this. And that actually, you know what, to go back uh, to, to the point of curiosity and opportunity, after I finished my bachelor's in computer engineering, obviously I got attracted to engineering, uh, when I finished, for me, all of my friends were either getting married or even having babies at that point. But I couldn't see myself in those roles. Neither could I see myself fit in in those molds. So obviously, now I say obviously, of course, it was very different at that point. I really wanted to struggle to figure out how I can do my further master's studies in, in the U.S. and get admitted here. So I went through all like the GREs and the TOEFLs and um, my uh, quantitative and anal analytical scores were brilliant, you know, like f because I was really good at that. And I enjoyed it. I mean, there was a clear passion and I was meant for it from the childhood. So it became easy and I was so glad that at age 20, I could just leave behind my culture, my family, my friends uh, with the hope that I'm, f I'm getting into an adventure to find something that is deeper that my, my mind needs. And that, that's when I came here for my master's education. Well, what's very interesting for me here, though, is you have a very clear 
vision of what you want to try and get to. Um, and you've got some clear outcomes that you're aiming for along the way there. I think one of the things we find a lot, especially when I'm working with people and coaching them through this process, is the people who can get good at, not perfectly, but having a sense of the direction that they want to try and go, mm-hmm. what better looks like for them, and and even describing some of the things that they would be doing. Like I'd be studying a thing that I love. I'd be working in my solving problems. I'll be figuring out difficult mathematical equations. Mm-hmm. Whatever those behaviors might be, the people who can start to describe that vision to themselves, mm-hmm. it provides a great north star for them to work towards and figure out how they might get there. Yeah. But you know what? It starts with just being uncomfortable. It starts with this feeling of this just doesn't feel right. And that's how you tap into that question. You just don't leave that question hanging there, but you follow through. And eventually you land up into what feels like, oh, Looks like you knew you wanted to come here. It looks like you wanted to do engineering. But I don't think when you're in the process that it's that straightforward. All you know is I will, I will know when I'm comfortable that, okay, you know what, this is where I have gotten to um, or, or if this is my destination. But at the same time, you do know that there is something better. And it's the fight to make yourself better, more successful, uh, and give the opportunity to fail because oh, I love failures. It's uh, it's something that I have come to love. Let me put it that way. Well, I think that's a, a great point, right? But even coming to the idea of celebrating failures mm-hmm. is very difficult for most people, mm-hmm. especially when they're in a world of being very results orientated, where they're used to working on problems they understand, have a process they know to work that problem to get great results Uh, and highly competent people are used to scoring good results right not bad results yeah yeah. but one thing I often find especially as you take on more more and more challenging roles or you're building things that have never been built before Mm -hmm. where problems are poorly structured and there is no one two three step process to solve it therefore the results you get are going to be positive and negative Mm -hmm. but really what you're getting is new information to improve your problem improve your process exactly now you've had to solve problems that have never been solved before when you were building products and services at Mm -hmm. apple and i'm sure as you're building products at at, um, reddit as well yeah so what what are your experiences of going through that sort of system in some respects through, through the system yeah um firstly it starts with passion i really wanted to work for a company that builds operating systems. That was the driving force for me first to get into Apple. And then getting at, getting in, I realized that the infamous culture that gets talked about, about Apple, right? It was more that Apple was so good in building an all-rounded human being for me. And I'm only talking from my perspective what I got out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when, I, when I joined Apple, I joined the uh, search and discovery team, and I was the third person on a three-person team. The second person had only joined four months before. So you can see how a multi-billion dollar 
company in itself, like search was bringing double digit billion dollar revenue for Apple, having such a powerful product be worked on by like a small, small team, almost like startup. And that's what Apple always did, which was nice. But what ended up happening is you couldn't give excuses. If there was something that was not available, you were the one who were building it. You couldn't say, oh, I product management is not my part of the deal. I'm an engineer. Go find a product manager. You didn't have the time for it. So what, what it meant was, how can you do it? What can you do? How can you be one man or one woman army? How can you look at design and think about a product from the user perspective? How can you make things simple? And it is extremely difficult, let me tell you, to make something simple is the most difficult thing because you have to be patient enough to be drilled into the dedication that you want a simple outcome out of it. It requires a lot of patience, grit, and, uh, and it, it comes with a frustration that you have to just learn to manage. So This yeah. is really interesting as well because, you know, scaling businesses and scaling companies or scaling agility and innovation, I, I get this question probably five times a week. And the thing that is continually needs to be debunked with people is the way that you scale innovation is by actually descaling teams, keeping them small, getting people connected to the outcomes that they're working on, yeah. helping them understand the impact of their work and create feedback loops so they can learn what works and what doesn't, recognize where they are lacking skills and need to build out and improve and growing the team, but not super big. Mm-hmm. What were some of those challenges then, especially when you're building this search functionality mm-hmm. where, you know, maybe people have never solved this problem before as a team or four or five of you, you know, what's happening there? And some examples yeah. maybe where things that worked out and you failed and you had to learn and yeah. get new information and improve what you were doing. And uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, especially like in school or, or the companies that I worked before Apple, what would happen is the solutions, uh, the problems were such that you would be able to Google a little bit and get at least few pointers on like, oh, you know what, let me do this or that. Um, with with Apple, because the products and the features were innovative in a sense of like nobody had even seen it. What happens then? You What are you going to Google? If iPad wasn't there, you're Googling about how an iPad is going to work, for example. Uh, it, you're just not going to find anything. And that gr- the tenacity to say, how will I find a solution that later other people will use for their benefit is a mind-changing game for you to start thinking as a leader. Because now you're not thinking, how can I copy somebody or how can I build somebody, re- replicate something that someone has done? Instead, you're thinking, how can I make something that other people can use? Uh, one of the examples actually was also um, one of my first project was where some of the in- integrations were happening for the iPad. And I didn't know that I was working on the iPad until the day that it was announced at WWDC by Steve. So it there were things that we had to know. We had to prepare ourselves for the unexpected. He would announce certain things at the conference, which not even the employees knew. It's, it also boils down to the, to the culture of secrecy that, that Apple had uh, for, for all the right reasons. But we would find out 
new feature launches and new product launches sometimes at the conference when when Steve would be on on or or Tim late, later would be on uh, on the podium. So you just had to be ready for what they're going to throw at you. And sometimes it would be some new features that we had to integrate right away and then deliver them. So how do you, when you think about it, think about as an engineer, how do you prepare for something that you don't even know what's going to happen? And that's brilliant. Well, this is very interesting, right? Because I think what I keep finding on the real edge of innovation, right? When people are building things that haven't been built before, when you're building the future, people really struggle with that environment because it's highly uncertain. Mm -hmm. It's unpredictable. There's loads of unknowns. Now, when you're used to working on problems that you sort of understand and you've got great processes, you know, that solve those problems and get you good results all the time and you're used to getting an A plus for your work. And now you're given poorly structured problems. Time pressure. No process. Yeah. Pressure. Yeah. And And don't don't fail because I don't fail. I never fail. I'm used to getting my A plus. Right. So how do you help people cope in that environment? Yeah. Because I know you've had to lead teams in those environments. How do you help them? Um, Again, I I am so thankful for what Apple gave me the opportunity. Seriously, like um, if I have to change anything, I'm definitely not changing that for sure. Because when you're faced with pressure, fear of failures, what I learned from Apple with all these deadlines and tight project schedules is break things down into small sets such that you can have a, a small execute, like end-to-end demo or execution of what you're trying to build, which gives you a momentum to do your next bit and then the next bit. So... You have rightfully said it in your book, think big, start small. So you definitely think big, you have the big vision, but you don't just let it be there. You make small things that are almost as good as the big thing and then combine them together to get you the momentum for success. Um, We used to always say this at Apple, failures are good. It's okay if you're failing. They are ways of telling you successfully what didn't work. But quitting as a result is absolutely not, accept, uh, not acceptable. So when you start seeing everyone around you, all these intelligent people around you model the same behavior, what do you think where the culture came from? It came from these kind of principles that were not just in words, but they were acted upon by every single engineer who I worked with at, at the time when I joined. Yeah, it's, it's a, this is, uh, again, fascinating for me because when I'm working with these companies and they constantly ask me, how do, how do I get people to embrace failure? Um, but for me, I see failure as just new information. We tried something. This mm-hmm. is the information we got that wasn't our desired result. So what are we going to do? Well, we're either figured out that that's not a direction we want to go in and we need to pivot to a new direction or we've learned something that we we wanted to learn and gives us confidence we're going in the right direction and double down again. But this idea of thinking big, starting small, learning fast, creating these end-to-end examples of these very challenging sort of wicked problems you're working on, so it gives you evidence that you can test your hypothesis of your solution, 
that other people can potentially integrate with it, mm-hmm. react to it, get right. feedback from it, yeah. give the team confidence, success that and we're actually delivering. And repeat. Exactly. Yeah. One thing that, you know, it's unfortunate in this culture is um, our culture stigmatizes failure as bad. And it, this was an experiment I did a, f- a few months ago. I was just looking at, on Kindle to see how many books are there on failure. And I was shocked to find that there were only 7,000 books on the Kindle store on topics like failure. But when I searched for topics like success, transformation, growth, each one of them had over 50,000 books. Just shows you the supply and the demand, and, and it's skewed. It's skewed where people think that, oh, because you failed, that you are bad or there's something wrong with you. Versus looking at it as, oh, you didn't get that job? Fine. Something else will come up or let's learn from that and move on. This is another example of the conditioning I find. Right, We're conditioned that only success is the only way to be. Mm-hmm. You know, don't talk about your failures. Yeah. Because, you know, you have this perfect, amazing life. Everything in my life was perfect. I went for every interview. I got them all. I went for every... <laughs> That's the ideal dream that people want to show. Right. But it's not it's not real. Right. Yeah. It's, it isn't life. And, right. you know, all of my great sort of growth moments were when I tried things and my expectations were incorrect. Mm. Either what I had for myself or, you know, what I had to learn along the way from doing it. You know, so much of even writing example of writing a book, so many things you're testing out. I test like ideas for books with tweets. Small little ideas to see, do people like it, react to it, want to Mm -hmm. engage in dialogue with Mm -hmm. it. Ship blog posts, some that are terrible and people never read. And you know what? It's really hard to predict which ones people are really going to respond to. And often what I find is that the ones that I think are just like, this is a throwaway. This is the 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 hit. It is. That's the hit. Uh And so if anything, all it has taught me is that this rate of experiment velocity is so important that you're never going to predict the future. Mm -hmm. So what you really need to do is test the future as much as possible, as quickly and fast as possible to get signal of what works and what doesn't. Yeah. You work with so many people, uh, I mean, CEOs, startup entrepreneurs, right? Mm -hmm. I am so sure that each one of them didn't land their big hit the first moment that they tried it. I just want them to speak more about the failures rather than the end result, because the end result obviously is going to look like, oh my God, you just knew everything, you're brilliant. But it's not that. It's the entire journey that they went through, what makes them where they are. Yeah, I agree. And it's it's definitely one of, one of the case studies we do uh, with Unlearn was actually with NASA uh, and Dr. Ed Hoffman who was the chief knowledge officer for NASA. And, you know, a huge problem NASA had was that loads of smart people, but nobody would share their mistakes. Mm. Because what do smart people never make? Mistakes. They don't make mistakes. <laughs> right. Mm. And But the challenge for NASA is that mistakes were happening. Right. People were making mistakes. And some of those mistakes were turning into mishaps and ultimately turned into catastrophic failures in some areas such as when Columbia and Challenger uh, were catastrophic failures because people weren't talking about problems that were manifesting and being resolved. 
So a huge shift in their culture was getting people to talk about mistakes. Mm -hmm. Because if we talked about mistakes and what we learned and how we improved the system, the system kept getting better. You know, and, and we see this in software as well. The reason you write unit tests is to catch mistakes in your code mm -hmm. when it's small mm -hmm. and then we improve our code. Right. Right. The reason we talk to customers with prototypes is because we get feedback earlier on our prototype has mistakes. So let's improve it. Mm -hmm. And this is such a powerful pattern that I see both whether you're building products where you're trying to change culture or you're trying to improve processes. And yet nobody really wants to talk about that learning, unlearning, mistakes, what did work as planned. Because I guarantee you, most people will tell you, I think it's even a higher percentage. It's not 50-50 about what worked and what didn't. I think it's actually higher towards 30% might work, 70% most of the time you're wrong. I, and I completely agree with you. There were times when we just didn't know what to do and we just came up with a, a process on, on our own, but that ended up becoming what ended up as a successful story later because we didn't just sit there and say, oh, you know what, let's wait for an expert to come and teach us how this needs to be done rather than we said, we have so much amount of time, that's it, go ahead and go ahead and, and get it done. Uh, it also allows the small pieces that we end up doing when you have a big vision, but then you break it into small pieces. It gives you the confidence that if you fail, you are only going to fail until your last successful run. So now the barrier between failure has already reduced and it gives you a lot of confidence uh, for, for high pressure stakes like this when you know your product is going to be launched by Steve Jobs on the podium for the entire world to use. It becomes, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting feeling to feel when that happens. So what was the time that you sort of went through that? Uh, either at Reddit or when you were at uh, Apple? What, what, what was one of those key projects where you really saw that come to fruition? The, the, the first one, obviously, um, was working on the iPad, and then the iPad got announced. Um, the other, uh, other projects that I've worked on have been iTunes Match. I don't know if you know these products. They, they sort of came and went, and then Apple Music... So uh, to, to give, you, give you a scale, if you have ever searched for any of the Apple Media products on Apple devices or, or Windows through iTunes, um, like apps, music, podcast, books, any of these things, if you have ever searched them, you have used my code and you are still using my code. Like if you go right now and do a search, you're using my code. That's how passionate I was with it because I started as an engineer and then grew through in, in the company. But it's, it's that passion that I knew that what I'm bringing to, to people. And it's not just search where you're doing word matching. You might say to do apps, but that might mean productivity apps. And it's not that you're just looking for an app that says to do app. So making sure that all of the natural language processing that was happening behind the scene to map what you are thinking versus what you're asking. 
and giving you exactly what you need. Uh, so, also, so as, 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 as you know, my background is, I did my master's in artificial intelligence and data mining. So obviously, like a lot of that was, uh, were good intersections. And you got it right the first time uh, you wrote that algorithm, correct? <laughs> oh my goodness. There have been cases, uh, w- one of the failures that I can, um, I can probably talk about now was we were launching um, iTunes, Apple Music, and uh, Apple Music was, was out the day that we launched it. Um, Pandora, now, now look at this, right? Like, so Apple Music obviously was competing with Pandora, Spotify, all of these other um, apps in the market. And the day we launched Apple Music, Pandora was nowhere to be found in the App Store. If, if you searched for it, if you searched for the app, it wasn't there. And Pandora felt obviously must have felt like, hey, you're probably doing this on purpose. You're, you're trying to get our folks to go and use your service. But actually, what had happened was when I was indexing two different products, somehow had the same ID, and I, and I was migrating the product. So this, this was like, I mean, just the odd, what are the odds? that the ID that had to collide was the ID of the Pandora app. And it was quick enough for us to realize what had ended up happening, but it made press. Like if you search for it, it's in the press and I'm sorry, it was my bug. Unintended consequences, yeah. right? And that happens all the time when we're building these very sophisticated, very complex systems. Yeah. But yet here we are. And you use this process, I, it sounds as well, that you just figured out that there was a, what was my last successful run? Right. And mm-hmm. how do I do a small deployment from there? Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting, right, to, to bring that to life for people, right, that you're using this process all the time to recognize, well, when was the last expectations I had that were true? Mm-hmm. And then I'll just build from there. Right. Yeah. People are yeah. often afraid to think like that. It's, it's extremely important for the managers and the leaders in organizations, especially when we talk about organizations, and if we are talking about family, then then the parents or whoever is the older person in the house, I think it's their job to promote those kind of behaviors and and nurture and and protect the the, the kids or the younger folks to say, you know what, it's okay, try it, it's okay, no matter what. If there is backlash, I I will take care of it. That's where innovation happens. I like a, one of my favorite examples was on the show recently. We had Joe Narenya, who's who's a like a, a COO at HSBC, right? A bank, classic bureaucratic organization. Mm-hmm. But he was sharing a, a story of, you know, one of the most curious people he knew was uh, the COO or CEO <laughs> of one of the bank departments. And what he used to do all the time to keep himself curious is whenever new graduates joined the company. He would go and pair with them at their desk ah. and he would say to them, how would you solve this problem? That he, he, mm-hmm. he might know how to solve it, but he was curious to figure out what different ways mm-hmm. they would tackle that problem. New technologies they might use, different processes, just as a way for him to challenge his own existing mental model, mm-hmm. but also to like obliterate this concept of strong hierarchies in very bureaucratic organizations like banks. Mm-hmm. So you had the CEO of a company sitting down with a graduate straight out of university and they're spending time together, learning and unlearning together. Right. And again, this role modeling um, of what these behaviors are, how people react when there are mistakes. Mm-hmm. 
What systems do you have in place to help you react, like thinking big and doing small changes so you can recognize quickly what works and what doesn't and improve it? Mm-hmm. Like there's a, a there's a way to do these things and, and systems you can put in place to help you be successful in highly uncertain environments. And we're working in those environments all the time, especially in big complex software systems that can have massive impacts on people when they operate as you expect or when you don't expect. Yeah. My two cents there would be make decisions fast and then stick with them. Find out whether they're failing or working. If they're not working, as fast as you made that decision, make another decision and just keep on, keep keep doing the same thing. And on, on to your point on one is decision making, but the other thing is how do you guide people in making these decisions, especially as like as a as senior director of engineering now in Reddit, it's my opportunity, it's my job and my responsibility to make sure I'm growing talent and I'm giving opportunities to these other folks who can experience what I have experienced in life. So if when you actually you've visited my 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 desk and you'll see all these post-its that I have. I will have, when, when we have a problem, I make sure that I do the due diligence of coming up with a solution by myself first. I'll not share it with anyone, but I have my blueprint, master print of if no one was here, what would I do? And then what I do is I, for strategies and you know team building, organization, now we're having, uh, we're expanding in Dublin, all of, or any of these problems, uh, uh, what I, what I will do is I'll encourage my direct reports into what will you do? Let's say this is your problem. How are you going to solve it? And then I'll have them go through the entire process of coming to a solution. And then I share my solution and we compare how close were they. Were there things that I missed? And were there things that they can learn from me? So it's always a curious, not, not a hierarchy thing, but it's more about what is the best solution at the end and how can we get to it? So like what's fantastic about that technique that you've shared is that you're both creating hypotheses of a solution mm-hmm. and then testing Correct. with one another to make a better hypothesis of a solution. Right. And again, this is sort of like the fundamentals of good critical thinking, which I think people don't really practice a lot in organizations. Often what you have is leaders know the problem, this is the process we'll use, here's the solution we're going to implement, go execute teams because Mm -hmm. I'm the expert. Mm -hmm. But really what you're defining here is you're still using your expertise to develop your hypothesis, but you're openly encouraging other teams to develop their critical thinking muscles to figure out how they would solve that problem. And then there's an open forum for debate about what you believe might do it versus what you're team member believes versus what another team member believes and everyone's using their critical thinking brains to formulate their hypothesis and then you're building something better from what everyone brings to the table correct it is it might seem really small but it is game-changing when people you're working with feel like they have a buy-in and collectively you have come to a decision rather than some per, somebody on a hierarchy is telling you what to do and now you're just executing their vision, it is a game changer. 
Absolutely, you know, because you're engaging people in, you know, taking ownership. Mm-hmm. One of one of the crucial challenges that I had was leaving Apple and joining Reddit. I was there at Apple for so long that I didn't even realize my muscle memory had automatically figured out how to behave, how to act in the Apple ecosystem. And I felt like that ecosystem is pretty much how the entire Silicon Valley is. When I came to Reddit, oh my God, I still remember the first few days, I felt like a fish out of water. I didn't know what was going on because it Apple was a closed culture where you're moving extremely fast, but at the same time, you have disclosures and your badge may only work in certain buildings. So you just knew like how to navigate around it. My badge had triple security so I could get into buildings that nobody nobody else could and not, not many people could. So I had to navigate around these scenarios. I get to, to Reddit. It was an open culture. They don't have servers or like everything is in, in the cloud open source code, acceptance of open source code is is looked upon as good and you're innovating or around it. So I was challenged. Oh my God. I didn't even know that I was getting um, physical pushbacks on certain things. A couple of things that uh, that actually so some of some some of the things I just had to let go. Uh, if I would have tried to behave like how I behaved at Apple at Reddit, I would have been an instant failure. It would just not have worked. It's not just about failure for me, but I would have ruined a lot of people's day-to-day life. So, so it was my job to quickly pivot and then learn what needs to happen now. So one of the things, uh, and then at the same time, there were a couple things that I brought from Apple to Reddit, which is, there were times when, you know, like when you're in a, in a startup, you tend to listen to everyone and you want everyone's buy-in, which is what we were talking about a few minutes ago. It's well, important. Yeah, consensus culture. Con- consensus culture. But designed by consensus. Exactly. And then what ends up happening is if you just go too far with it, now you're not making any decision. You get into decision paralysis. So at Apple where you're making fast decisions, moving so quickly, even if your decision was wrong, it was fine. It was good to know that it was wrong faster. And here, you're not making any decisions. If When I found that something of that sort was happening, I at least made sure that I was bringing in the awareness that I had gained from Apple into Reddit and being like, look, you guys are already great. How about doing this? Like, it's fine for all of the people to give consensus or or rather give their inputs, but in the end, let the best decision win. Don't just do it for impressing someone that, hey, I chose your decision. Do something that is great for the organization, not for the the people taking the decision. Yeah, this is, uh, again, such a good articulation of what I see on learning as, because, you know, it's not forgetting. It's not getting rid of everything you know. Your experience stays with you. I think it's recognizing what behaviors work in certain contexts, certain challenges, or things you're trying to work on. You know, and recognizing that a lot of the behaviors that you build up, maybe when you were at Apple, are great in that context. But when you change contexts, not all those behaviors are going to work perfectly there. Yeah. And then being able to identify, 
you know, where you feel like the team are not living up to the expectations you have of a great team. Maybe it's a decision making. Maybe we are to consensus versus being able to make decisions so we can progress. What helped you sort of hone in on that specific area and realize that the behaviors of the team were not driving the performance outcomes that you needed and then started to introduce new behaviors that would sort of dampen the consensus, still have the input, but also be accountable and responsible for people to make decisions so you could start to move faster. Mm-hmm. What were some of the little behaviors you would start to introduce there? Yeah, data-driven approach always helps. And what we have OKR system, so every quarter we have certain set goals that we're going to, to meet. When you follow something that is outside of you and when you decouple the human from the decision, it becomes much more faster. So when you're looking at data and you say, hey, I wanted, let's say, 10 million revenue, I didn't get it. At that point, you're only talking about that outcome. You're not talking about who made the decision. So it's important to isolate the thinking, the mindsets of people to, to, to focus on the outcomes rather than, than the ego-driven decision-making hierarchy. That's one important one. The second one is when you're bringing in culture as a leader into something that doesn't exist or a specific type of culture that doesn't exist, it is extremely important for the person bringing in that culture to be flexible and to expect pushback. The pushback is not for you. The pushback is probably creating some kind of um, cortisol threat feeling in these people because they think that, hey, I have done this all my life. Yeah, and it's a I new know behavior. Better. Yeah, it's a new behavior for them. Co- correct. So you have to cater to that and you, you can't just disregard that. Uh, once you look at it and say, fine, look, this, when you're thinking about X, this behavior, what it's not allowing to do is, is Y. Or the, the best thing that I have found, instead of telling them about these two things, just ask them. What would you do in order for us to get to this goal? How would you change, you know, uh, change your behavior, your team's behavior, or the actions that we're taking? And 70 to 80% of the time, they come to the right decision. Absolutely. And the way you make it safe for them to start. Yeah. Is it's just make important. it small. Yeah, and make it small. You yeah, know, and I, I find that pattern is so powerful. Again, just like you were describing about just solving these wicked problems that have never been solved before, where you've got a big aspiration and you're starting small with different experiments to learn what works. The same is true as when you're helping companies shift their behavior or asking people to try new behaviors, mm-hmm. right? We might have big aspirations to hit these outcomes, like doubling our revenue or increasing customer conversion by 200% in the next three months. And then asking people, how do you think? What could we be doing differently to get there? What's the smallest thing we could do today to start trying out that new behavior? See if it works for us or not. Yeah, uh, I have a really beautiful story for you. Thankfully, these concepts for me are not just book theories. Um, as you know, I'm a pilot. I, f- I fly planes. And when I, when I drive a car, I use the steering wheel to steer the car around, right? But... When I jump into my airplane, I can't use the obvious steering wheel in front of me to steer the airplane. 
I have to use the rudder pedals that are located down by my feet. Yes, you, you, you steer the plane with your feet. Now, think about this. When, when you're faced with unique situations like this, the, the fight or flight instincts that you have, you have to fight those tendencies to grasp for the most obvious option, yoke versus, it's called the yoke versus the steering wheel. You must use the rudder pedal in the situations when you really wanted to turn the plane. It's just not going to work. So thankfully, real life scenarios like this, almost like do or die situations like these, um, make, train my brain to constantly think that just because you know something doesn't mean it's going to work in another situation. Uh, if you know a skill, if you have a certain kind of abilities and, and mindsets, think of them as toolkits in your toolbox. You don't necessarily have to use all of them at the same time. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful message for people to hear. Like it is a toolbox. You build up your toolbox over time through experiences, for trying things, to see where that tool works and where it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And then recognizing when you're given challenging things to work on, problems to solve, what are the tools that can work well? What don't? Yeah. That's learning and unlearning for me. It's helping people adapt to the context, the situation, circumstance that they're in mm -hmm. and find the right methods or behaviors to help them pass through and get the outcome that they're aiming for. And practicing this is the skill. It's not a one and done. And to hear how you translate this, not only from building search in complex systems for Apple Music to flying airplanes where you're driving there and then in a yeah. plane and have to mix modes and start to... Right drive a plane with a whole different set of behaviors. You know, it's, it's powerful to hear how you're practicing this as a dis discipline deliberately. So what's, what's next for you then uh, on your own personal unlearning journey? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, I've had, <laughs> when I look at the role models that I've had in my life, next is a long next because there are so many things out there. And when I say role models, uh, my, my father really has been a cutting edge father, as I call him, because um, I saw him demonstrate when you have to want things so bad that you're okay to build the patience to go through the struggles and I've constantly seen him do that um, at his, his 71 years old right now and just four years back he finished actually a year back he finished a four-year uh, music degree in India which uh, the, the, it's it's a form of narration and he just enjoyed it so for him to do something like that keep his curiosity alive um, he's doing it for memory reasons he says but I think he's making a point unknowingly he wants to show no age is too old to learn well, I, w um, I was really lucky with this too as well because, you know, my mom, uh, you know, she, I'm one of six kids, oh, right? So she had a full-time, yeah, big are. family yeah. Uh, and a full-time job bringing us all up. But as soon as she brought us all up, she went back to university oh, in her 50s. Oh my goodness, that's amazing, inspiring. Inspiring stuff, right? Yeah. And, and went back and studied her degree and now she work, like, works with social care and helping people. Huge inspiration for me to see 
how much she's willing to continually challenge herself. <laughs> she's making your job difficult. <laughs> All the time. Yeah, which is lovely, lovely. No one, no one is uh, born great. You, you develop your skills into greatness. Seriously, that's how I look at it. And you always grow. And while you're growing, you, you have to think that you're growing your talents into your strengths. That's, that's really the process to, to move ahead. So with that inspiration, the immediate steps, since you asked me this question, and sorry, I digressed, but the immediate steps for me is um, at Reddit, the technology space and trying and understanding how we can use technology to, um, to distill social conversations, which actually I call it, uh, most people actually call it converse, conversation AI, is super exciting for me using machine learning to understand conversation and make machine understand what are the goods and the bads. That's super, super exciting. And then the second one that I'm really looking forward for is international expansion. We have our international headquarters in Dublin, your hometown. My hometown. Yes. And um, we're expanding. We have amazing things to to look forward for this year as well as next year. just in the last year, I doubled the size of my team from the, the work, the amount of work that we're doing. And by the end of the year, uh, it's going to quadruple. So super exciting stuff. I, I have scaled organizations before. So obviously, I'm not, you know, it's not a scary thing at all. It's like super, super exciting challenge. And I'm sure some of the things that worked before might work again. And yeah. I'm sure there's some new things that you'll have to do differently. It's always going to happen, and your book is going to help me uh, be a support. While uh, when I slip, I'll go back. <laughs> well, look, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing all your great stories. Thank you. And I look forward very. to hearing uh, what you get up to next. Thank you. I'm really looking forward for your next book. Let's make that oh, happen. Oh God, yes. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.